Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good evening, Jundo. How are you today? Uh, I've had my ups and downs this week, and I could uh, use a, a few minutes of uh, Zazen. Okay, shall we? Yeah, you know, I, I got to say, first I wanted to do a whole episode of Just Sitting. Yes, you mentioned we, that to me. It would be in honor of John Cage. It would have been the perfect Zen episode. We would have said hello, rang the bell, and at the end, rang the bell again, and that would have been it. But uh, today, let's just sit uh, for a minute. Okay, and maybe we'll do a whole episode sometime. I'll ring the bell. Ring the bell. Well, that was easy. Well, you know, it was only a minute, and I'm a little radical on this point when it comes to Zazen, but, you know, Zazen's not only a matter of how long you sit. Uh, sometimes sitting for a, a moment or sitting for a week, it's all the same if you forget about time, you know. Yes, true. And, and you've mentioned many times on the Tree Leaf Forum, is it your trademarked Insta-Zen technique? Yeah, I mean, I do that if I'm in the long line at the post office or uh, stuck on a bus or uh, in the doctor's waiting room. It's a perfect time just to to uh, sit or stand for a moment. But, you know, if you just take a minute or a few seconds to forget about long and short and forget about measuring and forget about quantity. You know, we live in a world where everything's about quantity and how much. If we can just forget about that for a few seconds, we truly sit beyond measure. So that's why a moment of sitting, like we just did, is lovely. It seems to me, and, and based on having read your writings and knowing you for a while, that what you're saying here is that the mere intentionality of sitting, even if it's brief, has in many ways the same power as sitting for a half an hour. If you forget about trying to get something, trying to achieve goal more, 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 which is what we Westerners want so much, what uh, human beings always want since the Buddhist time. If we can just sit forgetting about the calendar and the clock and uh, racking up points, it's a lovely sitting. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a time to, to like check into a monastery and sit for a week or a month. You know, that's good too. But sometimes to sit for a minute is lovely. Last week, I saw an advertisement on Facebook for some sort of gizmo that you put on your head, and the text in the advertisement was something like, make meditation easy. Yeah. And it kind of seemed to me that meditation is kind of easy anyway. 
You don't need much special equipment. It's good to be in a quiet area, but I don't understand how some neurotonic gizmo is going to make it any different. Well, you know, they they actually work and they're going to get better, but you know, it also is a matter of what you call meditation. So I got to talk about what is meditation first before we we talk about the gizmo, okay? Well, actually, what you need to explain is what is shikantaza, because there are many types of meditation, and the meditation that you teach is shikantaza, which is a specific type. Exactly, and we even like to say that shikantaza is not meditation. You know, we get right. We get a little highfalutin about that. You get all zen about it. It is meditation, yeah. and it isn't meditation. Right. Why? Because most meditation, you're trying to experience something or get something. It's what I was saying before. Everything is, everybody wants some more, 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 some, some kind of pleasure, some peace, some relaxation, or some mind-blowing experience, you know? How about if we just sat doing the opposite of that and radically sit, not seeking anything, being just content with what is? And if we do that, it's a mind-blowing experience of a different kind, you know. So shikantaza is just to sit where sitting is the purpose of sitting. You've heard me say this many, many times, all right? That's somewhat circular. Yeah, but think about it. We're always trying to sit in order to do so, sit to relax, or I'm walking in order to get someplace, or I'm driving my car in order to get to the store. We always want to get something. I work in order to get more money, right? I shop in order to get more things. We always want more, more, more. How about just sitting in which there is no more, more, more besides sitting? It's hard. You know, it's one of the hardest things for you. You asked me if, if, if this Zazen is easy or hard. It is one of the hardest things to teach people just to sit and be complete and whole and content in doing just what they're doing. I know that in my experience, before I got involved in Zen, I had gone through Vipassana meditation and Tibetan meditation, where you are always doing something, where you're trying to reach a certain level of meditative absorption, but by doing so, you're actively doing it. Unlike Shikantaza, where, as Dogen says, you want to drop away mind and body. Okay, now think about the Buddha. He's under the tree. He's tried all these different practices. And people have argued for 2,500 years about exactly what the Buddha experienced. But I'm going to give you a proposition. To be a Buddha, he saw the morning star and he felt, oh, it's complete. This is it. It's whole. There's nothing more to see. All right? So when we sit Shikantaza, we sit with that same attitude. Oh, it's whole. There's nothing more to seek. And when you sit with that attitude in your heart, it truly is whole, and there is nothing more to seek, and you realize the peace and completion of what we say is a Buddha, you see. And it's kind of counterintuitive, but doesn't it make sense? When Why search for something across the, the street when you can just sit here and say, oh, I have this already. 
But the other traditions, they have their techniques and they say that their techniques are right. Everybody does. I want to mention a book that I read this weekend called The Circle of the Way, and we were just discussing it before we recorded. Um, it's by Barbara O'Brien. It's a concise history of Zen from the Buddha to the modern world. Yeah, and it's a great book. It's a great book, and I learned an awful lot about these techniques and concepts and approaches and how they evolved over time, and that Dogen wasn't the first one um, to talk about practice enlightenment, that this goes back a few hundred years, and that Throughout the history of Buddhism through to Zen, there were a lot of different changes in the way people approached meditation and the practice in general. Yeah, but you know, what I was just describing about uh, just sitting or just letting go, sitting in what we call open awareness, or sitting without trying to make yourself into something, you know, that may be one of the oldest, if not the original form of early Zen. All the the complications, koan meditation, these things, these came much later. People just sitting, it, it, even beyond Zen, in the Taoist practices too, there's been just some aspect of just sitting, releasing, not trying to get something more and having great equanimity with what is. But isn't that almost too easy? I mean, once people learn to do that, there's nothing more for you to teach them. There's no stages along the path that you have to guide them. It is one of the hardest things to get people to do because human beings don't know how to do this. I have taught hundreds and hundreds of people or I, I guided this type of meditation for 15 years now. To get people to really understand this about just letting things be is so hard because it is against everything that people do from morning to night. We get up in the morning, we immediately think about all the things we got to do, everything that's lacking in our life, everything we want more, why we hate this, why we love that. We judge, we feel that there's something we got to do. We don't know how to sit without judging. We don't know how to sit without seeking something. It is hard to teach that. And maybe it's over time of repeating that this is what one needs to do. That's what you're, you're giving the instructions that are really simple. Um, it takes five minutes basically for you to explain it, but it can take years to keep repeating it for people to really absorb it and understand it and get to the point where they've accepted that they, wherever they are is where they need to be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But now you asked me about other kinds of meditation and I'm yeah. going to say this. I'm not going to say that this is the only kind of meditation or that shikantaza is the only way to do this. I think that there are other things that people can get from other types of meditation if they want. But you know, the, the trouble with many types of meditation is they're feeding into our desire for special experiences and to change something and to always be feeling, oh, I need more, more, more. I need a bigger piece. I need a, a greater vision of something. I need more of my life to, to feel perfect. Just let things be perfectly as they are. And then you can do other practices. So you asked me about those glasses, for example. Okay? Yeah, I don't think they, they're kind of a headband that you put around your forehead that make you look like that Star Trek character a bit. Yeah, you know, I, I experimented with things like that years ago, and the technology is going to get better. 
it can induce certain mind states of great peace. There may be ways actually to apply electrodes to the uh, outside of the skull, and you can uh, affect certain centers of the brain to create, for example, experiences of, of losing the sense of body, out-of-body experiences, for example. You can induce peace. You know, it's not a big secret. A glass of beer or a Valium, you know, will induce great mental changes in, in people. Uh, you know, But isn't if, that cheating? Because yes. what, what you said earlier is, is, is it's the intention, it's the, it's the mindset of sitting that counts. It's not taking a sitting pill or being plugged into a machine. Exactly, exactly. And here's a, a strange thing. The, the type of peace I'm talking about doesn't always feel peaceful. Now, I got to explain what that means, okay? There are times in my life that are anything but peaceful. For example, when I had my cancer diagnosis, right? Or when my wife was in a car accident. Or when my kid was sick in the emergency room. It was really not a happy, peaceful time, all right? But I was at peace with the experience. There was something about this practice with all the years of just sitting and accepting an equanimity all things that somehow even though part of me was scared about the cancer i was at peace with being scared even though part of me was worried about my child in the emergency room and whether she would make it through the night part of me was at peace with the question of life and death at that moment it's very strange to explain but it's a peace about not always being peaceful you don't have to be happy 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 all the time but you can feel a kind of joy to sometimes be sad, you know. So that's why if you're looking for something that's going to make you peaceful or happy all the time, I think you're you're on a wild goose chase. And you're really and doing yet, that's how many contemporary teachers present meditation. And I use meditation in the broadest sense, which goes from Zen to Tibetan Buddhism to mindfulness. I think the Buddha taught non-attachment, and that meant that he knew that this world of samsara, this ordinary world where we live, is sometimes a beautiful place and sometimes ugly, sometimes a happy place and sometimes sad. But he learned a great equanimity and wisdom that saw through all that. And how to say, it's an equanimity, acceptance, a peace, a being at one with a world that sometimes sucks. It does sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. You know, you have an experience in Zen, for example, that's sometimes your sense of being a separate individual self drops away. Sense of time stops. You find, for example, your sense of being an isolated individual is not the only way to experience who we are. And the only way I can describe this experience is as if the whole world is flowing in and out of all things, including you and me. And time really doesn't matter, all right? That's a big experience. And some people in, in Buddhism are running after experiences like that. And in the kind of Zen I practice, Soto Zen, we tend to say, those experiences are wonderful, but nice place to visit. Wouldn't and couldn't <laughs> want to live there. It's like, you know, it's like visiting the Grand Canyon, and it's, it's amazing, it's life-changing, and you learn a lot open vistas all the way around. But we don't want to stay there. Then we come back 
to this world in which there are things to do and places to go, but hopefully we keep some of that wisdom in our heart. The point is that those experiences, when they happen, they're wonderful, they're to be treasured, but that is not the point of our sitting. It seems to me that those experiences, and I've had a few, are glimpses toward an infinity that we're not really able to touch, but that they basically confirm that that oneness that you described really exists. Yes, yes. And and it can get in the bones. It can get in the bones, for example, when I was in the emergency room, or it can get in the bones when I was in the cancer ward. It was really there, that same. But I didn't have to experience it every moment. So what I'm trying to say is we sit and we experience many, many different things. And we take it all. You put on those glasses or you take a pill or you smoke something, all right? And it it may open your eyes to something, but you you have these wonderful experiences and we realize that this whole beautiful, ugly sometimes happy, sometimes had sad world, is that too. And that's okay. I will once again um, drop in a literary quote from Marcel Proust, who said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Right. Exactly. The world just appears different. I want to go back to something you said earlier when we were talking about um, this meditation gizmo, and you were talking about people racking up points in meditation. And I find this a disturbing um, trend that's going on. You know, there's this app, um, Insight Timer. It's a meditation timer, and you can record how long you meditate and how many days. Um, if you have an iPhone, you can record how many mindful minutes you have every day. And as you said, people are chasing mm. after some sort of goal. And it's not like you're doing a meditation marathon and you have to get your 42 kilometers or 26 miles. And I don't see what the point is in saying, oh, I'm the best. I did 100 meditation minutes this week. I often compare it to walking the mountain. I think it's not the first time I've said that during the time we've been doing this podcast. There are a couple ways to walk a mountain. You can walk a mountain where you start and you want to get to the top and you're not happy until you get to the top. And when you get to the top, you think that's it. And then when chances are, when you get to the top, you realize that you, you, now you still don't know how to rest. Now you want to get to the next place. All right. But well, how about this other way of walking a mountain where every step is its own arrival? Every step is its own top and you keep walking forward. That's our meditation practice. Now on this walk, you might find some lovely vistas where uh, everything looks like a postcard and you might pass some ugly places, uh, burned out forest or trash on the ground, all right? How about if you walked it and you realized that it's still all the mountain you see? You know, you don't have to get to only uh, a picture postcard place that lasts forever and ever. You realize the whole mountain is the point. The journey is the point, not the goal. The journey is the point. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, I've yet to find a place, a way, I should say, to, to get people to really understand this. Some people do, but I had a guy come to me the, the other day and said, oh, I, I, I had great meditation today. I got to the seventh jhana. 
Ah, yes, the jhanas. The seventh jhana. And I said, oh, that's really good. And he said, well, what should I do now? I said, well, I don't know. Uh, If the seventh jhana (laughs) is a good thing, you will find out because in a somewhere in a few days, a few weeks, it'll have importance in your life. But, uh, you know, I think that you're kind of chasing jhana. And I would advise you to now put your jhana down. (laughs) The problem with that is there's always another jhana. Well, I, they they say I think in, there in, are seven in, of them. I know it's a it's an yeah. Indian thing. Is it the Yoga Kara school? I'm not sure. Yeah, um, and there's a good argument that uh, uh, anything over the fourth jhana is kind of a a, a fiction of uh, some religious thinkers of, of the past. They're not quite anyway. I don't want to get into that. But yeah. the Buddha talks about the fourth jhana, which at one point was the highest stage in meditation. People think the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th jhana was something that may have come in from Hinduism, actually, back into Buddhism, that originally the Buddha just spoke of the 4th jhana. And what was the 4th jhana? Well, people have argued about that. But if you look at the definition in the old suttas of the 4th jhana, it is basically just equanimity, putting down likes and dislikes, putting down the chase, leaving your mind to kind of be whole with the object of the environment around you. It's very similar to what I'm describing. So there's a good argument to be made that what the Buddha realized after all his searching and work was how to truly just rest, be complete and whole. To just go a little bit further about meditation instructions and meditation being easy or sometimes not, I can't sit on a cushion anymore. I have back pain. So I sit on a sort of a stool that I have. And I know that you're not against this, but a lot of teachers are. They they say you have to do it a certain way. And I, I've never understood that, that it excludes people because of physical limitations saying you can't do it because you can't do a full lotus. Can, can you do a full lotus, Junda? I can. I'm a little bit uh, fat thunder thighed. I can. <laughs> Uh, I, I actually do it once in a while for old time's sake. Yeah. Uh, I still got the flexibility if I really push myself, but it's, it's not good for the knees. And I know so many Zen guys who have blown out their knees over the years trying to do the full Lotus. I'm going to tell you this. There's a fetishizing of the Lotus posture, especially in Japanese Buddhism. I don't think you find this so much in other corners of Asian Buddhism. But in Japanese Zen, there's something about the rigidity of sitting in the posture where the posture is given a certain power uh, more than it deserves. I think the posture should be just a balanced, comfortable, stable way to sit. And one size does not fit all. I have to say, my own teacher, Nishijima, he believed in the power of the lotus posture. He was a very traditional Japanese old fellow. All right. And doesn't Dogen say that as well? Uh, not yeah well in Fukin so, Zazendi, doesn't he specify the lotus posture if possible yes but i tend to think that he was talking about the act of zazen which happened to be done by most monks in those days in the lotus posture this week in our sangha we had what i call a reclining lion's pose zazenkai we have several members who have physical issues, disabilities of some 
kind that requires them to recline. They cannot sit upright. And we actually have some folks who stand because of bad back issue. So I said, you know, these folks, sometimes they come to me and say, oh, I feel like I'm not really doing it because everyone else is sitting. So I said, oh, okay, we're all going to recline. So everybody, even the people who have no health issues, we all reclined our zazen. And I told people, don't fall asleep. This is a this is zazen. This is not a nap. Uh, but we all got in various poses, lying down, so that we could say it is not about the body. The point of the body is to find as best you can someplace comfortable and stable, and then forget about it. As they say in New Jersey, what do they say, Kirk? Forget about it. Forget about it. Right. Forget about it. Right. Okay, Roshi, where do we go from here? I got to get the, my glasses charged up to uh, get my ex- cosmic experience. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know where we're going, Kirk. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.